0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello friends, people, countrymen, people of Earth and beings, deciphering this ancient language in the future ruins of our civilization. I'm Rob Wolf and this is New Books in Science Fiction, the I Lift Things edition. My guest today is someone who has contributed in myriad ways to the art of science fiction through his many, many novels, his past leadership as president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and the platform he provides other writers on The Big Idea, a feature that appears regularly on his website. His writing has earned numerous awards, including what was once upon a time known as the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, the Hugo Award for Best Novel, Hugo's for Fan Writer and Best Related Book, and the Locus Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. Yep, I'm talking about none other than John Scalzi, who is joining me from his home in Ohio to talk about his new book, The Kaiju Preservation Society. Hello, John. Welcome to the pod. Thank you.
2: It's good to be here.
1: I really appreciate you taking the time to talk because I know you've been super busy promoting the book. So I wanted to ask how that was going and and what reading in public has been like in this, I, I can't say post-COVID era. It's not really post, but it's sort of quasi-post-COVID era.
2: I mean, I just got my uh, second booster shot today, so it's definitely not post, but we can kind of see post from here. And that's that's a good thing. It's been surprisingly good. One thing that I was actually really happy about was Kaiju was originally slated to come out in October of 2021, or at least that's the slot it was going to be put into. And I think Tor, once they had the novel in their hands, kind of looked forward to October 2021 and said, yeah, the world's not going to be ready for you know, events or any of that sort of stuff. So they bumped it uh, another six months into March. And so we got, I think we got lucky in that the COVID numbers came down enough that people were willing to come out of hiding and come to events. And also, I think people really wanted to come back to events. And this particular book was a, a good one to come back to. I know that at a lot of the bookstores I was at, they were telling me that I was their first event in like two years, which on one hand was really cool. But on the other hand, I felt like, wow, I better do a good job because I don't want to you know, scare people off from coming back to these things. And people were appreciative. Most of the places People were still wearing masks in the audience, which is fine. I sometimes wear a mask or not, depending on how close I was to the audience. I usually wore a mask while I was signing. But everybody sort of got that that was the way things were when we're sort of dipping our toe back into some semblance of going back out into the world. People are really excited to be back out. People really seem to appreciate that I've showed up. And generally speaking, people seem to be having a good time.
1: Mm, that's so nice to hear, because you know, obviously for the last couple of years, the writers I've spoken to, so many of them, their books came out when first the beginning of the COVID era, so to speak. People weren't sure how to promote their book, and they were trying things online, and then that became the norm. Yeah. And and now it's nice to hear, you know, it's nice to hear people yeah. coming out.
2: Well, I think what we're beginning to understand is that, for example, like I had a book that came out in April of... 2020, right when everything was locked down, and we I was supposed to do a physical tour, and of course, I got yanked. And immediately, uh, my publicist, at tour Alexis Cirilla, converted that all with you know, in a superhuman effort into all online things. And so, I was part of the vanguard of doing everything on Zoom, and she did a good enough job so quickly that Kaiju, I co-dedicated to her in appreciation for all the work that she did because it made a difference. Even if you can't be there physically, people still wanted to have that connection. But there were pluses and minuses to the online promotion thing. The plus was anybody from anywhere could sort of tune in and participate or see you do your thing. The minus was you kind of missed that human interaction. And it took us a little while to figure out how the best way to do online events were like the first several events that I did were basically just me talking into the void and that was doable but it was exhausting because of course you got no feedback from the audience and then eventually everybody hit on the fact that the way to do it is to have a conversation so most online events now are like in conversation with some other author or some other person and i think that that works a lot better what i think we're going to see going forward is a combination of the two like i did a lot of in-person events this time, but I also did three or four virtual events as well. And I think that those kind of cover all bases for the people who are in the towns that you are in. uh, They're super excited to show up, but there are people who want to be part of the tour experience who aren't going to be in the towns that you're going to visit simply because most book tours are not that long. And for those people doing the virtual events really does fill a hole and uh, so I think as we go forward it's not going to be either or it is going to be a little bit of both and both serves a need and both are are valid ways of getting the word out about your book
1: yeah it seems like a lot of businesses are going hybrid so why wouldn't publishing and authoring as well and it's good for the bookstores of course to bring people in to have foot traffic
2: sure Absolutely. And the thing is, is that you work with what you have, right? Like when we were in the middle of the at the very beginning of the pandemic and nobody was going anywhere, we had to we had to work with the virtual space. But now we are finding out that the virtual space can be complementary to the real world space. That there's not a, well, now we don't have to do this anymore, but more of we can do this this way, and we can do this uh, this other way, and then there will be other events where people will do a third way. We are finding out that the experience now is going to be not just hybrid, but it's going to be a richer experience, and it's going to be one that hopefully reaches more readers where they live, wherever it is that they live, whether they live you know, in a particular town or whether they live online.
1: It's one of the few good things of the pandemic that we have. (laughs) New ways of communicating and connecting.
2: Well, you know, the thing is, is that people had, like I said, people had to make do. I mean, if you were, when the pandemic started and we didn't have vaccines and we didn't know what it was going to do and how uh, dangerous it was, it was just very, very uh, difficult, and people missed their friends, missed their colleagues, tried to do connection however they could. And and I think that if you're only given one way to do things, you immediately notice it's lack, right? If you can only hang out with your friends on Zoom, uh, eventually that becomes tiring. But in the same sort of way, if the only way that I could communicate with my friends was in the real world space, I would be a very lonely person because I live out away from most of my friends in a tiny little town in Ohio. Most of my friends live somewhere else. So I spend a lot of my time communicating with my friends online and then get to see them in person a few times a year. And so what that tells us is everything is part of a continuum. I mean, you can't Just live life live and in person you certainly don't want to just live life online you want to have the entire spectrum of opportunity open to you one of the things about the pandemic is it really made us examine the quality of the communication that we did have with people whether it's with friends and family or with fans and readers, in my particular case, uh, with colleagues and coworkers, it all got thrown up in the air and we all really had to think about it, whether we wanted to think about it or not. And uh, I think that coming out of that, things are. Things are necessarily changed. I mean, like, for example, you know, now a lot of people are permanently working from home. So the co-worker space is an entirely different space uh, than it used to be because there are so many people who are you will just almost never see in the office. They'll come in maybe once a week or once a month or whatever. But otherwise, you, the way you're going to communicate th- through them is through Slack or, you know, or, or through email. And it doesn't mean that that relationship is worse or lesser. It just means that it's different, and we're all going to have to adapt to that new reality. I think it's interesting. I mean, we we have found out things about ourselves that we would not have found out had we not had to go through a pandemic. And all things considered, I'd rather would not have gone through the pandemic if I could have avoided it, but we couldn't avoid it, and so here we are.
1: Exactly. We don't need to keep talking about this, but you did make me think (laughs) for the first time I was like, why do people make such a big deal out of Zoom? Like, it's so annoying and it's so whatever when we used to talk on the phone all the time. I mean, no one likes to talk on the phone anymore, but you know, you could spend hours talking to a friend on the phone even if they lived, you know, not that far away, and it wasn't exhausting. It was it was a way to communicate. It was could be very satisfying.
2: It could be, but I will tell you what the what the concrete difference between the phone and zoom is and it is actually the speed of the connection so like for example you and i are talking on the phone right now right there is no lag right the connection is really clear we can hear each other very well there's no problems there and zoom everybody is dependent on their bandwidth, right? You know, sometimes the images are blocky. There's a lot of stuttering. There's a, can you hear me? Can you see me? Can you hear me? Can you? and There's that layer, additional layer of exhaustion that gets put into it, trying to sync everything up. And this is why, quite honestly, a lot of the times if I'm given the, the choice between doing something on Zoom or doing something on the phone, I will say, let's do it on the phone. Because even though I can't, see the person, right? The instantaneous back and forth, the lack of lag is so much of a better thing. And the other thing is also quite honestly, and this is going to sound weird, but you are right now in my head. I have headphones on, so you are directly in the middle of my skull. And when I'm talking on the phone, it's right up uh, to my ear. Whereas on Zoom, you may or may not have headphones on, but there's always that separation on a screen and it's not the same as being in person. So there is, I I wouldn't call it alienation per se, but there is a divide in Zoom and then all the other sort of video uh, conferencing stuff that happens that you don't get when you're on the phone. And it's really interesting to me that so many people now just automatically default to the visual visual conferencing as opposed to just calling. Um, Because like I said, for me, uh, the calling is a lot more satisfying and, uh, and in many ways it's a lot more intimate, not in a, in a, you know, sort of romantic or erotic way, but simply in the sense of the connection that you can feel with someone. And so, yeah, all these people walking around in the airport with a screen in front of them while they're trying to walk. And, you know, I'm like, dude, just use your phone. Use your phone. It's a phone. Use the phone.
1: Yeah, it's like, a, it's like they want to show where they are. It's like an Instagram continuous moving live feature.
2: Right, exactly. Everything, everything, is, a, everything is a TikTok now. And the thing about it is it's like I've never understood why people wanted to be on screen all the time. I look like hell, like 95% of the time, right? Right now, you can't see, but I am unshaven and wearing a T-shirt. I mean, I do not present a pretty picture right now. You're much better off with just my voice.
1: Well, that's what hide self-view is for on Zoom, so you don't actually have to look at yourself.
2: <laughs> well, no, but other people have to look at you. And I was like, it's no treat, you know? It's like you're much better with the voice. The voice is, I, I think, uh, a better compensation than the whole visual thing. And also my internet connection, because I live in rural Ohio, is really bad. So we would already have lost connection by now.
1: Mm, well, there you go. Well, if you have one of those ring lights, everyone looks attractive with that, don't they?
2: I, I do have a ring light. And... uh And it's really funny to me because, you know, the ring light does illuminate your face, but then everybody also has the ring light pupils. Do you know what I mean? Oh, right. Where like directly in the center of their eyes is this glowing halo. And so basically everybody looks like a robot now.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, I don't have a ring light, but you wouldn't know that because I'm in your head and you can't actually see me. You've invited me into Dude. your headphones.
2: Dude, and, you're in my head. You're in my head, man.
1: And it's very comfortable here, so thank you very much. And, you're and w- very welcome. While I'm here, I will now turn the conversation to the Kaiju Preservation Society. What? Uh, I have a book to promote. What? Exactly. It's, I'm going to help you do that. So... The Kaiju Preservation Society, it's told through the narration of Jamie, who's a guy at the start of the book who thinks he's about to get a promotion. huh. He works for a food delivery startup, and he gets called into the boss's office, and something happens. And I thought maybe you could say, we could start off by you explaining what happens to him at that meeting
2: with his boss. Okay, but before I begin, why do you think Jamie's a he?
1: Oh, uh-oh are you serious did i completely <gasps> i is there no pronoun in there to explain
2: no there's not oh no The uh, the answer is that uh you know everybody just sort of defaults to whatever they default to and uh i did if you go through the book there's no pronoun usage with uh jamie other than i but nothing to identify male or female or non-binary i just l- left it that way and it's been I, I didn't make a big deal about it. We didn't talk about it before uh, it came out. And so it's been fascinating to find out what people think about Jamie.
1: Well, well, that is brilliant, actually, because I didn't, you know, it is first person. And yeah, and I guess that, yeah, very, very good. So do you know the answer or is it not to be answered?
2: I, I don't have an answer for, for people. I knew going in that I wasn't going to. Gender, Jamie. And so I didn't ask. So I don't know. And it's one of those things that you can get away with in text that you can't necessarily get away with in other media. Like, for example, Kaiju Preservation Society has been optioned for television. And it seems likely that, you know, there will be an actor attached and the actor will be male or female or possibly non-binary, but one way or another that will be answered for the purposes of the, of the TV series of the TV series ever goes forward. But that will be kind of interesting to see what happens with that. But I found in terms of writing it, I didn't want to, I didn't feel it was necessary to put in gender markers one way or the other, because I didn't think it was something that was relevant to Jamie doing what they're doing. So I just didn't, I just didn't put it in.
1: Well, i'm I'm impressed i'm impressed, and I feel <laughs> caught i feel like i I hit a psychological test and I fell into some uh gender trap, but that's okay no I...
2: no 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 you did you did nothing wrong. I want to be very clear <laughs> one of the things one of the things that's that's interesting because I also did this in lock in where uh the main character, Chris, who walks around in a robot body, is never gendered in in the text uh and part of that was because how people would approach somebody who is walking around in an Android body would not necessarily, would not be gender first, right? And so it made sense in that particular sense to do it that way. And this particular story, that's just, you know, it's something that I could do and I just decided to do it. But what is always interesting in both of those cases for the lock-in books and for Kaiju is seeing how people default. And um, there's, you know... If you pick one or the other or if you go non-binary, no matter where you go, it's a perfectly valid choice because this is part of the communication that we have when we write books. There's what I present to you uh, as the author, and there's what you bring to the story as the reader. You defaulted to male. Some people default to female, but it's not always guys always go male. Or women always go female, or non-binary people go non-binary. Um, there's a there's a mix all the way through, and some people catch it and some people don't. People who I've noticed who are trans or non-binary tend to catch pronoun use more because they're more conscious of it um, because of their own life circumstances. So usually, when people ask me that, a lot of times it's someone who's trans or or non-binary. Otherwise, cis folk. Uh, just kind of go off, um, doing what they're doing. And again, it's not a trap. You have done nothing wrong. You are great as a, and I, and I affirm you as a human being, oh, thank uh, you. but thank it you. is, but it is interesting to see, uh, where people land on the, who is, who is Jamie and what is their gender, you know, assumptions.
1: Totally, it's it is fasting, but I am in your head, and while you're speaking, I am going to find the answer. I know you have a thought in here somewhere, so I'm just going to wander around and and look for it. But meanwhile, I have to. I'm I'm going to uh, just ask the question again. Uh, could you say what happens to them when they go in and speak to their boss?
2: Well, they get they get laid off, and that is something that they absolutely weren't expecting. And more than being laid off. They uh, eventually have to become a food delivery person for the very same tech company that they had, had worked for before, because all this is happening in, in March of 2020, when COVID is, is clamping down on everything. And it's through the food delivery uh, journey uh, that Jamie takes that they meet up with Tom, who works for a non government organization that uh, tends to large animals is how it's uh, presented to Jamie. And Tom offers them a job. And that's when they join the Kaiju Preservation Society, although they don't know that that's what it's called yet. Uh, and they find out that there's a whole other place with very, 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 very large creatures um, that are what we would call Kaiju, uh, which are, of course, Godzilla like. Monsters.
1: That's just one of many pop culture references in the book. I mean, there's the book is filled with them, particularly science fiction ones. I'm mean, Snow Crash, Star Wars, Stranger Things, Pacific Rim. I mean, I I could go on and on. You go on and on in the book with them. There's Twilight, sure. Hamilton. But I yeah. guess the kaiju reference is kind of the the defining reference, and sure. uh, there is. I found interesting, part of the application process that Jamie must go through in order to be accepted into this organization, the Kaiju Preservation Society, they have to answer the question, what do they think about science fiction and fantasy? And it's an intriguing question that gets explained later in the book. So if you don't mind, I thought maybe you could explain why the applicants or the people selected to, to, to join are asked this question.
2: Well, I mean, I think the answer is that people who are into science fiction and fantasy are used to the idea, at least in a sort of abstract way, of these monstrous creatures, right? Um, They have seen them on TV, they've seen them in the movies, they read about them, uh, they play them in video games or play against them in video games. They are so used to the idea of these creatures, um, that when they come face to face with one, they're not going to completely uh, lose it, right? They're going to be able to, I have a model for this in my brain, and the model is Godzilla or is Pacific Rim or is any of these sorts of things. And I think that that's actually sort of important. And it's a theme that I've, I've hit before in my very first novel, the very first one I wrote as opposed to the first one that was published. But the very first novel I ever wrote was Agents of the Stars, And the idea behind that was aliens want to make first contact. And the way they do that is they get a Hollywood agent. And the reason they do that is because they understand that the earth's relationship to aliens comes through our common culture. It comes through TV, it comes through movies and all of that sort of stuff. So what better way to manage that introduction than through Hollywood? Right. Um, so this is the idea that common culture or that pop culture sort of inculcates us uh, or in, uh, or even more directly inoculates us uh, against a fear of the unknown is something that I've, I've come to uh, again and again in, in, in the work. So when this question gets asked, this is just another restatement of something that I believe, which is we know. You know, we know aliens, we know kaiju, we know flying saucers, we know, we know all of that stuff through our entertainment. And that's how we, in many ways, see the world. That is our frame of reference. So the more that you are into that sort of stuff, the better you are going to be able to handle it when it really happens.
1: I love how Jamie points out that Jurassic Park didn't end well. I forget exactly what conversation they were having with Tom, but mm-hmm. uh, they say, you know, it didn't end well for most of the people. I mean, it ended well, whatever it was resolved, but you know, a lot it, it didn't yeah, yeah. end well for anyone really. And and Tom says to them, "Well, they were sloppy. We're not sloppy. And they were fictional. <laughs> this is real." And yeah. Yeah that you know that's so meta we have a fictional character announcing with confidence that this is real sure it's um it's not only funny but it does kind of throw the reader or at least myself you know i start looking around and going wait that is funny because they're not real i'm real but wait that's what they just said and you sort of like well am i real
2: is this the real life is it just fantasy? <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, no, but that's part of it as well. And again, that's something that I've played with before, specifically and directly and in, in an even more meta sense in red shirts, right? R- what frame of reference is reality? Is it the frame of reference of the story? Is it the frame of reference of the reader? Is it the frame of reference of the writer? All of these things are fun to do. Now, the flip side of this is that if this, this sort of mental calisthenic is not your thing, it can get tiring very quickly. And there are people who get really irritated with me, it's like, oh, God, Scalzi's doing his meta thing again. Do we have to be here for this? And I mean, and in, a, in a very real sense, I get it. But on the other hand, you know, you know, these are the jokes, kids. You, need, you either laugh or you don't. And if you don't like it and that's perfectly fine. The good news is. Science fiction is incredibly rich and diverse these days. You will find something else that you like better.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, protein-plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals. Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Well, I like science fiction or anything that puts puts humans in perspective. You know, it lets <laughs> has us realize how small we are, or how our grip on reality or what we think is true may not be true. All those things seem to me to serve a a good civic purpose. Keep us keep us humble. Right. Uh, another thing Jamie says is that because we don't do nuclear testing anymore. There's not a threat of the kaiju uh, entering, I mean, without going too deeply into the plot, but they're in an alternate place. And they, uh, as you describe it, it, there's a thinning, there can be a thinning between the worlds uh, if there's a, a nuclear explosion and such. And I was reading this as Putin in our real or maybe not real world, was doing his nuclear saber rattling. And I thought, oh, gosh, I wonder, you know, when John Scalzi was writing this, it, d- it did seem just a year ago that nuclear weapons and the Cold War and that threat and mutually assured destruction was behind us. And then this past month, there's been this, I think, upsurge of not n- very good nostalgia among those of us who live through you know, a time when it, it felt much closer. And I, I just wondered if Jamie would, if you would have Jamie say those same words again, or if they're, or not, I don't know.
2: I mean, of course we can't, you know, predict the future. And I wrote, I finished writing this in March of 2021. So I, I had no better, if I had known what was going to happen in the future, one, I would have invested more wisely. And two, I might have changed things, but I don't know. I mean, I personally Find it difficult, and this is going to bite me in the ass one day for sure. I find it difficult that the nuclear saber rattling will actually come to anything but saber rattling, because that is a that is a bridge that is incredibly hard to come back from. So I remain fearfully optimistic that that is just going to be saber rattling. That said, you know the thing that is really difficult about writing in more or less contemporary time is that time catches up with you really quick and things that were true one month are not true the next. And so, yeah, I mean, looking at Kaiju, Kaiju literally came out three weeks ago today as we are having this conversation. And yet in many ways, it's already a historical artifact and that's just kind of the way that you have to uh, deal with things. I mean, it helps that the time frame of the story is very specifically delineated. It happens from March 2020 to March 2021. So it's a close enough time that everybody who's reading it right now remembers that time and can engage with it. But at the same time, it is in our past now. What will be really interesting to me Is reading Kaiju five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, in many ways, it'll it'll be this quaint little artifact of a very specific moment in time, not just because of COVID, but because of how much the world will have changed by that point.
1: Do you want to talk a little bit about the world you've created that the kaiju live in and and I'm thinking specifically about how radiation is actually good and life-giving in this place as opposed to our Earth, our planet right now where we associate it with destruction and cancer and and all that.
2: Right. Well, and it, it goes back to the idea of, you know, you have have different starting points or different different evolutionary branches that I react to the environment of the place where the animals or the creatures are evolving, um, and you're going to get different results. I posited in the course of the writing of the book that this alternate Earth that the Kaiju are on has a larger uh, concentration of actinides, uh, so like thorium and uranium, all that sort of stuff. And because there is a relatively higher uh, proportion of them in the crust for whatever reason, then the creatures that uh, have evolved have evolved to take advantage to, of them in a way that creatures here on Earth have not, uh, our Earth have not. And it's kind of just a fun, you know, mental exercise of you change initial conditions. How does that change results in terms of evolution, in terms of what things are going to favor continued uh, survival and, and what things are not. Now, someone who is an actual evolutionary biologist is going to maybe look at what I've posited and be like, mm, I'm not 100% behind your police work here, John Scalzi, but for the purposes of what I'm doing in, uh, for entertainment, I think that it's plausible enough. And that's kind of interesting to do. And also, like I said, you know, mm-hmm. building from there, if you have relatively higher amounts of things like uranium and thorium and stuff like that in the crust of the earth. How is that going to change how the relationship uh, with the creatures have with that stuff, not only in terms of whether or not it presents um, the same sort of evolutionary detriments, you know, with the DNA and with everything else, but also in terms of how they create energy for themselves. I mean, so much of, the way that plant life and animal life on Earth uh, works is through sunlight, which is just another type of radiation, but in the sense of everything derives from sunlight. Almost everything does uh, in the sense that plants photosynthesize, animals eat plants, other animals eat the animals, they eat the plants, and so on and so forth. But sooner or later, it all comes back to sunlight. The only places where you don't have that happen are in very specific places where for example, there are sulfurous heat sources at the bottom of the ocean, and then things have evolved to take advantage of the energy source there. Well in this alternate Earth, here is another possible energy source, it makes sense to me that life would evolve to take advantage, either wholly or in part, of that additional energy source and then of course just build out from there it
1: it makes sense i should i guess i mean it's true the word radiation could be sunlight is is a form of uh radiation too so it's really radioactivity or nuclear um right nuclear combustion or nuclear uh, activity and that makes a lot of sense, and, and I always I always get annoyed when people talk about you know could there be life on other planets? Is there water? Is there carbon? And it's like, well, why? Maybe life just evolved out of something completely different. Why do we have to make it so uh, earth centric?
2: Right. Well, I mean, part of it is because that's the model that we have. Right. We have no other model for. Life other than uh, this particular planet, we have not found life on any other planet. So we don't know, other than in completely theoretical sense, why it would uh, what, you know uh, how it would go any other way. Now the thing, there are reasons like, for example, for water or for carbon. They are they are things that make life as we know it uh, so much easier that it doesn't seem difficult to believe that. In other places with similar conditions, that this is the way that those pathways would go because they are easier pathways uh, chemically uh, or on an atomic level than other things. You know, people are like, what about silicon-based creatures? And if you talk to a chemist, they will explain why carbon's easier to work with than silicon. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just merely means that this is easier, and of course things that are easy are always the way that things are going to kind of proceed more likely than not. That said, there is no reason why life on another planet or even other places on this planet have to proceed the way we expect them to. Like I said, if you go down to the sulfurous vents at the bottom of the ocean, um, you will find life forms that are so wholly alien to the other life forms that are so that are closer to the surface of you know the water or on the are on ground that they might uh, just as well have come from a completely different planet it seems likely that chemistry will find a way to organize itself in a way that we would describe it as life and we should not be bound to the things that we know but on the other hand the things that we know still cover just a huge amount of ground
1: true but in a universe full of potentially infinite possibilities you think every kind of possible life form exists somewhere but maybe not as frequently
2: yeah well no that's yeah no that's the whole thing is it's like if you were going to do a, like a bell curve of what are the things that life will look like Probably in the middle of the bell curve would be things like life that requires uh, liquid water, life that uh, uses carbon as a fundamental building block. And then from there, you you go down the uh, sigmas of further and further unlikely to have happened until you get to something that's incredibly unlikely to happen. It is, as they say, a quantum physics universe. Anything could happen, but some things are... More likely, and it seems to be more seems to me more likely that you are likely to find life um, that is like ours, if only because so much of the life that is like ours there is that common thread running through it now that said, it may turn out that we find out that gas giants are the ones that are actually the things that are uh, most populated. Uh, with living creatures and that rocky terrestrial planets are actually extremely rare to be inhabited. Who knows? We will find out.
1: Mm, Your next book. Sounds good. (laughs) So your book also made me think about, and maybe this isn't the right word, but I'm going to use the word privilege. And I was thinking Uh about Jamie's boss at the beginning of the book, this guy, Rob Sanders, who launched this food delivery startup that has a lot of umlauts in its name Mm
2: -hmm.
1: with his dad's money or his family money. And so he's got the privilege of money, which gets him, I guess, to a point in life, you know, it gives him access to a lot of things. It compensates or hides his lack of morals or his lack of intelligence or whatever but money money takes them rather far and then you have the scientists who are doing all the hard work and the dangerous work of studying the kaiju and and they have intelligence which maybe isn't really privileged but it gives them the status and qualifications to go to this alternate earth and then you have these vip visitors who get to go to this place, too, who have the privilege of, like, Rob Sanders being rich or they're they're politicians or they're high-ranking military people. And then there's really only one person, I think, that I identified who really doesn't have any of those privileges and yet also gets to go because... Well, as he often repeats, he's good at lifting things, and that. Oh, I say he. Oh my God! I said he. They. They. <laughs> they. Uh, she. They. A pronoun it's, of your choice. It's,
2: a, it's okay. It's okay. You again. <sighs> you've done. You've done nothing wrong. I did not mean to make. No. You no. No. That. No. It's
1: okay. I. I wanna. I mean, you pointed something out. I don't know. You don't know. So I want to be accurate, which is. I want to be a little more vague and my uh take a pronoun that's a little broader so they also get to go and they become the hero of the story what does this tell us about jamie or about about you what you're uh, picking jamie as the character this decent hard-working person who joins these other people who have these other privileges quote unquote
2: well, part of it is that I wanted to tell a story that was about the that world and things that were not specifically about the hardships that Jamie might have undergone, except for the initial thing of being laid off and having, uh, you know, uh, trying to survive the same pandemic as, as everybody else. So it's a question of what your frame is for the story and why the people are... There And so on and so forth. It's absolutely 100% true that this is a story where most of the characters have assumed privilege of some sort or another. For example, you know, the sci- let's take the scientists of the Kaiju Preservation Society. They are all very well educated. Most of them have gone to uh, ha- have doctorates. So they have managed to get to a certain point in their education, they have a certain amount of social status. And anybody who's ever been an adjunct professor is rolling their eyes now. But you know what I'm saying, that they have a certain amount of status uh, that allows them to be where uh, they are. Now, they may be diverse in in terms of their individuality. And one of the things that I did try to do within the framework of the KPS is make it clear that uh, these people have come from all over the world. It's not just a whole bunch of straight white people, but at the same time, they do form a educational cast that is fairly high up. Um, then you have uh, the people who are who are the tourists, and all of those people are either they're rich or they're powerful It's one or the other. And that, that speaks to something else. This is a very, you know, this is a very bourgeois story and I'm not going to pretend that it's not, but I think that that's, that is the setting because there was a particular sort of story I wanted to tell. And for me uh, at the time I was writing it, um, these characters were sufficient to tell that story. Um, there is another story to be told to, I'm sure about, other people uh, and how they would uh, approach the kaiju world and how they would react to it and so on and so forth. But this is not that particular story. But even, even Jamie, even, even though Jamie lists things, you know, is basically a grunt. Uh, Jamie's has a master's. Jamie went to the university of Chicago, which is an elite school. There's an assumption that Jamie, if not, a member of sort of the upper middle class or something like that has had enough exposure to that, that they are familiar with the way that that particular world works. So yes, there's a a lot of privilege that is going on in this particular story. The story is not about the privilege per se, but it's also not a story that could that that could be written without those assumptions of privilege there, and I think that that's fine. I mean, I think you you know you I'm not I am writing a specific type of story. There are some things that you can just say this is a given for this particular story, and and then you move forward. It doesn't mean that I can't be critiqued on that. Uh, on those assumptions or those givens. Uh, it doesn't mean I can't be criticized for them if someone wanted to go ahead and make those sort of criticisms. But, you know, they are what they are with the telling of this particular story.
1: Well, I mean, I, I was really thinking, Jamie, within that milieu was a bit of a failure. I mean, he, they never finished their dissertation and they are working delivering food and they, they're they not going there necessarily for their qualifications other than they can lift things and they're one of the there is someone else there uh, another person in that I forget their name who also is a lifter but generally speaking I I thought it gave them a different perspective on what was going on maybe even though you're right they they really aren't very far removed they're conversant in that world but but in everyone else's eyes they never got their dissertation and they you know they're not a specialist in any particular thing
2: That's that's true. Although, you know, it's interesting in the sense of one of the things that I have, and maybe this is wish fulfillment on my part, is that no one gives... Uh, Jamie or Val, who is the other lifter, who is actually based on uh, a friend of mine uh, whose name actually is Val. And I sent her in, an arc of the book, and I was like, you may recognize a character in this book. And uh, and as she was reading along, she was like, oh, my God, I'm in this book, which I thought was hilarious. That's great. Uh, but nobody there actually looks down on Jamie or Val for being the people who lift things because... Uh, one of the one of the ethos of the uh, you know of the KPS is everybody is there for a reason, and the reason that they're there is important. They do need people to lift things. They do need people to handle all the administrative tasks so that the scientists can do their work. And you know, there's that there's that saying: uh, if you want to find out what a, how a person uh, really is uh, see how they treat the wait staff, you know, in the sense of like someone who is next to you, but is rude to the person who's serving them food, then they're a rude person because they feel that they can get away with that. And one of the things that I have in- inculcated into the KPS is that everybody, everybody's job is important. Everybody is doing something that helps everybody else. And that if anybody was to give Jamie or Val shit for being the lifters of heavy objects, um, that person would probably find themselves, if not ostracized, at least made aware that what they were doing was not cool because again, you know, this is kind of a fantasy world I'm making. And I would like to believe that there would be the type of person who would actually, be like well you're nobody because you lift things is someone who would wash out uh, from the kps fairly quickly because they have they don't have the right ethic for making this little tiny bottle society on a completely different planet where everything will kill you work you can't get away with that on in that circumstance where you might be able to get away with it here on on our earth basically
1: I think I want to wrap it up with a question about the process of writing the book you say in the acknowledgements that you were in fact working on another book that was due in just a few months. And you now I don't remember if you ran out of steam, you lost interest, it was during COVID. So it sounded like you were having a hard go of that particular book. And you switched to writing this one, and you still made the deadline. So it sounded like it just took a few months to write the book. And I wonder how the hell you did that.
2: Uh, so Kaiju, uh, I wrote it in five weeks and it's not actually the shortest amount of time that I ever wrote a novel. Red shirts was also written about five weeks. And I wrote the second book of the interdependency series, which was the consuming fire in actually two weeks, which I don't recommend. It was really painful. Um, but that one, I just lost track of time. And then I looked at my calendar and I'm like, Oh, this book is due in two weeks. Oh, uh, and then I wrote 8,000 words a day. So don't do that. It's bad. It's a bad thing. Uh, no, what happened was I was writing this uh, other book and this other book in 2020 was a, what, basically what I would call a dark and gritty, a cynical political thriller in space. Uh, and it turns out that 2020 was exactly the wrong year to be trying to write something like that. Um, for reasons that anybody who lived through 2020 may recall. Uh, and I, between just not, you know, being able to get into it and also just the world being on fire uh, in a significant way like it was in 2020, I just couldn't focus and I would keep trying to write it and it just wasn't working. And finally I had to admit defeat and um, that was really bad because I had never blown a deadline before. I just never have, Um, but I couldn't get it done. I just, there's no way that I could finish writing it. And so I told my editor that and my editor was, fortunately understanding, uh, and then having dropped that book off the schedule completely and having no idea what I was going to do, that's when my brain just said, oh, while you've been panicking about this book, other books that you were never going to finish, uh, I was thinking about a completely different thing. And it's called Kaiju Preservation Society. And, just, and it just downloaded into my brain. And so basically that, I just basically sat down to start uh, typing it. And in five, five weeks it was done. It was very fortunate. It was, you know, and it was very, I was very glad that after grinding my gears for most of the year uh, that this story that just sort of sort of magically appeared in my brain was so easy to write. I do not recommend doing things this way. And I, you know, and I'm the first to admit that I was extremely fortunate that apparently my subconscious uh, knew that I was going to be in trouble and prepared ahead of time. Uh, But It was great that it worked out the way it did for me. I was very happy. And I'm very happy with the book. I mean, especially after grinding away at this sort of dark and moody book uh, that wasn't working for all these various reasons, to have a book that was basically sort of light and fun and enjoyable to write as well, as as it turns out uh, for most people to read, it was kind of a blessing. It was kind of uh, really good. It reconnected me with the fact that I enjoy writing and that uh, that it's fun for me, or at least should be. So I'm very happy that my brain sprung this book on me at pretty much exactly right time for me not to miss a book deadline.
1: Amazing. So you said, I'm going to miss the deadline. They said, okay, and then you still didn't miss the deadline.
2: Well, and then what happened was as soon as this thing dropped in my brain, I immediately uh, emailed my editor. was like, hey, remember when I was going to blow that deadline? Give me six weeks. And then... Uh, I hit it now. Oddly enough, like I said, you know, it was done in time to come out in October of 2021, but they then punted it into March of 2022. And and like I said, I think for all things concerned, uh, that was a better choice. You know, the world was ready for all the things that we needed to do to help make this book successful.
1: But that should count as six months credit for you because really they could have given you six extra months and you could have, you know, so you should just save that for later, remind them later when you need six months.
2: You know, I would love to believe that that's the way things work, but it's not. (laughs) But I was, as it turns out, I had another, uh, I had a novella that was also due. So I immediately went from doing kaiju into writing that novella and that novella will come out presumably later this year so it's not like i actually had six months free right it's like i had other things that would have that that piled up so it had to be written when it was written and uh fortunately everything worked out the way it should have
1: well you are obviously a very busy man and so i (laughs) i and our listeners right now are deeply appreciative. I'm speaking on their behalf. I assume, I believe it's true, if they've stuck around this long in the interview, uh, are sure. deeply appreciative that you've taken the time to sit down and talk to us about the Kaiju Preservation Society, and and thank you.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: I have been speaking with John Scalzi, author of the Kaiju Preservation Society, which came out in. March from Tor Books. Thank you for listening. You can always uh, subscribe and I encourage you to do so. Uh, If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf and I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of The New Books Network. And Leanne Wilson is the co-editor and I hope life is treating everyone well. Please take care of yourself and the people you love and take care of your books and your pets and as many people and things as you can and keep reading.